drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's it's time for the gunny. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get online right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarter Deck. I am your host, Miguel, The Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and a happy new year to everybody out there. And hopefully you all celebrated the year in a wonderful way with lots of drinks and lots of adult beverages out there. This week on the Quarter Deck, we're going to continue our reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy. And we're going to talk about the force protection. How important is actual force protection for a unit that it's out there deployed? In this week's Hero Highlight, we're going to take a look at Colonel Justice Marion Chambers, United States Marine Corps, and what he accomplished in order to receive the Congressional Medal of Honors for his actions on Iwo Jima. The Quarterdeck. Well, here we go now, five days into 2023. Holy crap, where the hell did 2022 go? If it's anything for you, like it was for me, I mean, this year just flew by. And it seems like the last past couple of years, ever since freaking 2020, the years are just flying by. And it's just hard to believe that these days go by so damn fast. I don't know where the time goes. I tell my wife every single day, I'm, I can't believe it's already this day and that day. And you guys know, since I stopped working last year, it uh, it has been like a relentless way for me to even remember exactly what day of the week it is because I just simply forget what day it is. I guess that's a good thing. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, retired life. And it makes you forget the days and you don't care what day it is. Well, yeah, that's right. It doesn't matter what day it is. It's just that I just realized that the time for me is just flying by so freaking fast. I'm like, good God, I mean... It's been already eight years, eight years since I retired from active duty in the United States Marine Corps. And I mean, yeah, it's 2015 when I retired. So I'm like, man, time is flying by. And I don't think I'm the only one that thinks that because I've talked to so many other people and they're like, man, yeah, you're right. Time has flown by so freaking fast. My son's going to be 12 years old this year. And, you know, if you guys remember a couple episodes back, I was telling you guys how I have a freaking cluster bomb of birthdays. For our family, my sister-in-law, February 2nd, my wife, February 6th, my son, February 9th, my youngest daughter, February 22nd, mine, February 28th. Oh, also Gunny's is February 28th, and my oldest daughter is on the 3rd of March. It's like somebody picked on me, put a freaking straight birthday IED in the middle of our family and said, boom, here you go. Have fun. All these birthdays are going to be during this time. So I'm like, man. So, you know, one year, maybe one of these years, we're going to see and possibly get everybody together and have just one big giant celebration for all of us together. I mean, that'd be a dream of mine that I'll be able to do that one day. But who knows? Who, who knows exactly how that's going to go and how we'll see. 
You know, on a different note, I have been getting more and more projects coming up as far as with the photography and stuff. Uh, we have a, I have a contract that I got to go do here on the 14th of January that they rescheduled. It was supposed to be before the holidays, but they had to reschedule. So we went ahead and did that and rescheduled them for the 14th of January. It's a nice family portrait shoot. They're return customers that we had from last year. So we're going to go ahead and do the same thing. And they're going to be having their whole entire family. So a total of about 25 people they are going to have there to be able to get an actual family portrait done for all of them while they're here. And uh, so, yeah, so that's going to be fun. That's going to be special. And for this job, my son is actually going to go with us. It's on a Saturday, so he's going to be my second assistant. You know, my wife is always my first assistant at all these projects, but he will be my second assistant. And he always like going there because whenever I have a project, whenever I have anything going out there to do, and he goes with me, you know, he gets a little paycheck too. He gets paid a portion of what I pay my assistants when they come out there with me to do any of these projects. So he's looking forward to it. You know, last time, whenever I went and did the job or the project out there at the casino, I took him with me, you know, and it was a big project. So it was a nice contract that I got with them. And I took him with me. He was out there with me for about six hours. And then he's like, well, dad, how, how much am I going to get paid? And I, you know, I paused for a little bit. And I was like, I'm like, Hmm, let me think about this for a second. I don't know. How does $2 an hour sound? And I saw his face just go, because eh. <laughs> he was out there for eight hours. So he would have made like 16 bucks and like, no, I'm just kidding. Like, I'm going to pay you pretty much half of what I pay the assistants when they come out here with me. And right away, he's like, well, how much is that? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to wait till I get the, I get the final paycheck for the project. And then you will get your little paycheck and stuff. And, uh, you know, and it's always good that I always tell them that, hey, you're going to have to work for it. And uh, I told them, you're going to be pulling my cart with all my equipment and stuff, and that's going to be your job. Anyway, when we got to the casino, you know, I, I loaded the cart with everything that I had. And, and I mean, this thing was pretty little heavy. One of those little wagons that we have. And I loaded, you know, my tripods, the lights, uh, the strobes, the reflectors, uh, all three cameras were loaded into our little tractor. And I told him, hey, you're pulling it. And, you know, that's your job. And he's like, okay, I got it. So we get to the casino. And uh, he was all excited for one because they gave him a little visitor's badge that he had to put on his shirt whenever he was walking around with me because we were going to be in the hotel part. You know, of course, he wasn't going to be allowed to be in the actual casino floor, which is not not a big issue because we weren't going to be there. We were going to be out in the hotel rooms doing the pictures and everything that they were doing out there. You know, I could tell he was getting tired. He was getting tired of pulling the little, the little uh, wagon because we were going to about four different rooms. And we ended up spending about maybe two hours, two and a half hours in each room taking all these pictures. And we were getting ready to switch to a different room, and I was getting ready to grab the cart and go. And he's like, no, stop, stop, stop. That's my job. I'm, I'm responsible for moving the cart. You just go ahead and tell me where we're going to go, and I'll pull it. <laughs> you know, and right then and there, you know, I felt proud because he wanted to make sure that he did his job. He accomplished it because he knew he wanted to do what I expected him to do, and he did it on his own. So that's, that's something that, you know, I, I think back and I'm like, man, that's the moment that I, you know, to me, I just felt, you know, I felt the great feeling of a father saying that, you know, my son on his own decided that, yes, he needed to do that stuff, which is great because I see so many kids today that don't do that all. They don't care. They won't take the time or the second to actually do these small little things. And that's one of the things that we continue to, you know, try to, 
work on with him and make sure that he understands these things. And, and, and by no damn means am I perfect. I know that there's better ways to do certain things. And the way that I do it is not the best way to do it or is not the only way to do it. But he's learning. So he's going to be 12. Man, it seems like yesterday when I was in Afghanistan when he was born. And let me share that story with you guys. When, you know, in 2008, I moved from Camp Pendleton, California to North Carolina. At that time, uh, my wife and I, we were only dating. We were only dating at that time. And they sprung orders on me to North Carolina. And I was like, oh, man. You know, we had just been basically going out for about a year. We've been uh, seeing each other and stuff like that. And let me tell you guys, it, it was a freaking mission to get her to go out with me because I was like, oh, my God. Fresh, she had already told me, like, no, no, no. We're only going to be friends and friends and friends. I'll never date another Mexican and this and that. And right then and there, I was like, oh, I got it. I'm on a mission now. Game on. And, you know, one thing led to another. We ended up, you know, wanting to see each other's stuff and everything. But it was a year, and I got these orders. And I remember that night because we were already living together in the same apartment. And I told her, like, hey, I just got orders. She's like, what orders to where? They're sending me to North Carolina to the East Coast. And then I looked at her, and I want you to come with me. And she said yes. She didn't even think about it. Right away, she said yes. I'll put my two weeks notice at my job. Let me know when we got to leave. And we left, <laughs> just like that. And, you know, now, you know, we think about it now, too, that you know, we really didn't think about any of those things when we were first dating or anything like that. Because she made choices right away and stuff and everything to do things with me. And this was during the time when I was just, you know, I was going through a very, very bad divorce uh, right before I met her. So things were bad. I got back from my deployment in Iraq and, and I came home to nothing. I had a sea bag, my motorcycle, and that was it. I got left with nothing. You know, I was basically homeless. I had nowhere to go. If it wasn't for my roommate at that time that, you know, I asked another one of the other staff sergeants that, hey, like you got your apartment, you got an extra room. Like, would you rent me one of those rooms, you know, and I'll help pay, you know, half the rent or whatever, just so I have somewhere to go, you know? And of course, you know, he let me stay there and stuff. And we became, you know, better friends than we ever were there because, you know, we got that, that friend hate relationship, but you know, everybody's got issues and stuff like that. But once we were actually roommates, it was a whole different way of seeing each other and stuff and everything, you know, work was one thing. Being home was another. So we left North Carolina and we were out there and we had our own house. We rented a house out in Richlands, North Carolina. Some of you guys may know where the heck that's at. That's where we rented our house out there in Richland. And uh, we were still dating where we weren't married or anything like that. And then we decided to get married in uh, May of 2010. That's when we decided to get married. And like I told her, you know, the only reason I want to get married is because Look, right now, yes, you're here with me and all that stuff, but what if something happens? You don't have any medical benefits. You don't have any of those things. And what if something should happen, and then we don't have any way to get you to the doctor, and we got to pay everything out of pocket? So one day, and I won't say one day because it was on the 2nd of June, I called her up. I was in my office, and I told her, like, hey, get dressed, and I want you to meet me here at this address. And I didn't tell her where the address was or anything like that, but I told her, get dressed. And then she met me there, and, and she didn't realize that it was the courthouse. So I took her down into the courthouse. We went inside and she's like, what are we doing here? And I told her it's time. She's like, what do you mean? It's time. Time for what? And, uh, 
I told her it's time for us to get married. She's and she's like, what? And she's like, we don't have to get married. We just stay the way that we are. And I, I, you know, I told her like, no, like, I want you to be my wife. I don't, I don't want you to just be my girlfriend. I want you to be my wife and I want us to be together. So we went inside, got our marriage license and stuff. And then I asked the lady there, I'm like, okay, we have the marriage license. And she's like, well, you can get the, the magistrate to go ahead and marry you guys. And I'm like, okay, so wh when do we set up an appointment or stuff? She's like, oh, it's, no, you can go whenever you want. It's 24 hour service that you can go in there and he'll marry you. And I'm like, okay, well, what time will be available today? And he's, she's like, oh, at eight o'clock tonight, eight o'clock tonight. I'm like, yeah. And then she gave me, she told me, yeah, just go ahead and go down here to the magistrate, go down to the, the bottom at the basement, the elevator, and then go inside. And then you go ahead and he'll go ahead and marry you guys there. He'll be there on duty and he'll go ahead and get you guys taken care of. Just take your marriage license. And then there you go. I get back to the office after all that said and done. And then I asked my XO and like, Hey, sir, I need you to do me a favor. And he's like, yeah, sure. Whatever, Gunny. I'm like, Hey, we're, I'm going to get married. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get married now. I'd like to see if you would be my witness. And so his, him and his wife were my, the witnesses for the, our marriage. And so we showed up at the courthouse about 7:45 in the evening and, you know, go down to the magistrate and lo and behold, <laughs> we get down to the basement. The lady failed to tell me that it was the jail uh, where the magistrate was at. He was at the, at the jail or down there where he had duty. So he took us into his office and we we're right there in front of all the cell, all the cells and all that stuff. And he went ahead and did his thing there. I do. I do whatever. Kiss the bride, blah, blah, blah. And there we go. We got married. And so we got married in the jail on the 2nd of June. And uh, so that's one of the stories that I, me and my wife always tell everybody that they don't believe us that we got married by the magistrate down there in the jailhouse in North Carolina, down there in Jacksonville. But yeah, that's a story that, you know, that we can tell all the time. And it was interesting too, because my wife could not get the vows out of her mouth. I don't to save it all. So the magistrate, like, just say, I do. And she's like, I do. And, and that was that. But back to my son. So as soon as we got married in June, my wife found out that she was uh, pregnant. And of course, you know, we went and got an actual appointment there at the doctor just to confirm to see if she was pregnant or not. And yes, she was. And, uh, you know, this was right before we were about to deploy to Afghanistan in November of 2010. So we were on, in the process of training and doing all the workups that we needed to do in order for us to get ready to deploy. And so I missed the whole entire pregnancy, basically. I left in November down there to Kajaki in Afghanistan. My wife basically dealt with everything dealing with the pregnancy. She came back to California and she spent the last months with her parents there in California to help her with the final months of the pregnancy and stuff like that. So when I woke up in the morning, because I knew the day that she was going to be having her C-section for my son to be born. So I knew the date and all that stuff. And I knew the time. And I was deployed. I was in Afghanistan. So, you know, one thing that I'm thankful for is that because of all the technology and all those things that are going on now, that we were able to communicate with our loved ones back home because we had internet, all that stuff. And since I was the battery gunner sergeant for the battery, of course, the staff and COs and the officers, we had Wi-Fi internet service in our own little house that we were staying in. So each of us had our own little Wi-Fi in our rooms that we were going to be able to connect to our computers so this way it allowed me to actually make a video call back to california where my son was being born and you know i kept trying and trying and trying it just rang and rang and rang because my sister-in-law she was the one that i was supposed to connect with in order for me to be able to be there 
when my son was going to be born. And lo and behold, I find out that my son is born because she posts a picture on Facebook of him and stuff there. So I really wasn't able to see him very good because it was just saying, Oh my, my nephew's here and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Oh my God, really? So then I called again and finally I got an answer and I was able to see the little munchkin, that little crib midget or my little fuck trophy as I called him. And I, I saw him for the first time there over the video and it was just something that I wish I would have been home for, but you know, things happen for a reason. And on that day, as soon as he was born, I had a box of cigars that I had sent to me. So yes, everybody there got a cigar to welcome the new baby battery gunny, as they all called them. They all called them the baby battery gunny. And I had a flag flown there for him as soon as he was born. They already had it there at the gate. And I told him as soon as he was born, he's here. They flew the gate, ran it up for 30 seconds, brought it back down, folded the flag. And he also got a certificate from the commanding officer stating that that flag was flown in Afghanistan in honor of him. And he has that in his room till this day right now. And I got the certificate in a different room, but I am going to get it framed so I can put it there with his flag. So this way he's able to remember the story. And when he asked me, I can tell him the story of how that flag came to be his because, you know, that's his. He was flown for him in his honor in Afghanistan. And it's just great that it was able to be flown on his birthday for him to be able to have that for the rest of his life and be able to tell that story to his kids about how his dad was able to get it flown out there in a combat environment for him. And then when I finally came back, I came back as an advanced party, you know, to be able to set everything up for the Marines when they got back, you know, get the rooms in the barracks set up, make sure that they had the planning for the buses their travels back to the United States. We were going to get all that put into place. And so we flew back and I remember it was me and Corporal Guevara. <laughs> we flew out of Kajaki on a Huey. They, they sent a Huey to pick us up. And so we flew in a Huey from there back to Camp Commando down there in Afghanistan. You know, we knew the zone that we were at. We knew that they had an anti-aircraft gun that the actual Hajis had brought into uh, our AO. And one was destroyed that we were able to destroy, but we knew that they were bringing another one in. And these bastards, man, oh my God, I can tell you guys that, you know, they're sneaky little punks because so we found so many tunnels, so many tunnels in the abandoned towns and the buildings and all that stuff. And that's what they were using. They were using these different tunnels that they had and I was like, I used to joke around with the Marines all the time. Like, oh my God, they must have contracted Chapo to go out here and show them how to do the Chapo tunnels to get from one place to another. We told the, the pilot and, you know, like, hey, remember that right now we have a known anti-aircraft gun that's been put into place in the, this area in the green zone. We call it the green zone because that was where it actually had trees and stuff like that. And uh, we told him like, hey, you know, got to make sure we're careful with that area and stuff like that. And what does the damn guy do? He freaking, you know, he pulls up, we get in the air, and he flies right over the damn freaking green zone. And me and Cobra Guevara just look at each other, and we're like, oh, damn. You know, <laughs> our luck is going to be that we're going to get ready to fly out in this freaking Huey. And, you know, we didn't want anything to happen. You know, that was our main thing. And they flew us into a different other camp, and then they had to land because they, they got a car to go somewhere else. So they dropped us off. They left us there. And we were there for about four hours just in there waiting. And we're like, I'm like, good God, I'm like, are they ever going to come back and pick us up or what? 
And uh, finally they came and got us and then got us back to uh, commando. And then we were getting ready to fly back to the States here within the next week or so. Once every, all the other advanced parties from the different batteries that we had attached with us came back and then we were going to get ready to fly out. Once we've got back to Camp Lejeune, I'm going to tell you guys, it's, it's a, not an eerie feeling, but you know, we have the feeling that we're leaving. We're leaving our Marines back there while we're getting ready to go home. And they're doing the same thing that they do every single day. They're fighting the fight. They're, you know, conducting missions, doing all the things that they got to do. So in a way that, you know, I felt kind of guilty for leaving them, for leaving them there because it was my responsibility to make sure that they were taken care of. And here I was getting ready to leave, head out there and get back home with my family while they were still over there. But when the bus pulled up and we actually stopped in front of the battalion CP, the command post, the bus stopped. I just sat there for a little while because I had to get off the bus. But it was just that feeling that I got okay. I got to get off. And I didn't see my wife. I you know, didn't see anything when I pulled up the bus. So I just sat there for a little while. And I was the last one to get off the bus. And when I finally got off the bus, my wife found me. She basically attacked me like a savage beast. <laughs> like a lion pouncing on its gazelle. That's what it felt like. She gave me my son. That was the one thing that she did. She gave my son to me. He was already three months old. The first time that I actually was able to hold him in my hands and my arms. And those of you that have deployed and stuff and have had your kids born while you're gone, you guys know exactly what I mean. The feeling of actually coming home and seeing that little one. I was like, wow, my little man. Yes, I have my daughters and all that stuff, but I don't know. My son was different. Because I had my daughters, but having my own little man that was going to be able to carry the name forward of our family, you know, that was important to me. So it was great to have him and see him. And I, you know, I just didn't want to let the little guy go. And finally got back to our house and didn't even take my uniform off. I just took my, my blouse off and sat on the couch and put him there on my chest and he fell right to sleep. It was just like he looked at me and I could have swore he smiled. He had that little smile on his face and went right to sleep. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's how my son was born in while I was deploying to Afghanistan. And I'm pretty sure a lot of you guys have gone through the same type of situation. And those of you that haven't, you know, you guys get the opportunity to actually see and to kind of understand that we take for granted a lot of things. A lot of things are taken for granted. Now, for everybody that's been in the military or is in the military, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know how many birthdays, how many Christmases, New Year's, anniversaries I have missed when I was on active duty. So many that I missed a lot of them. You know, so now that I'm out of the service, sometimes when those holidays come up, when those dates come up, just another day to me, just like another day, whatever, just another day is nothing special or nothing important. And that's something that I'm continuing to work on because that's not true. That's not the case. Now, these are special times and days that you want to spend with your family. And I'm getting used to that. That's the thing. I'm starting to get used to it to understand exactly all the things that I missed. That's my fault for not understanding those things. But that's one thing that we have to remember as Marines, sailors, army men, whatever. Remember that once you're done, your family is the priority. It's the most important thing. Yes, I have love for my country, my core, my family. But those priorities have changed a little bit now. My family comes first. When I was on active duty, I did everything that I needed to do. 
I stayed at work late hours. I got in there super early, didn't get home sometimes like 10, 11 o'clock at night. Now that I look back at it, I'm like, man, why the heck did I stay so late? Everything was done. Everything was completed. But I always wanted to make sure that everything was there and I was there to make sure that nothing happened. So I didn't have to go back there to the office. But now I have the time. I have the opportunity, the time to actually spend all this time that I do with my family. And I have to realize that that's the important thing. That's the important thing that I need to make sure that I keep in mind. And all of you guys remember that too. Remember that your family is important. Take care of them. Take care of them because you guys never know. We never know when our last day is going to be here. That we're not going to be able to tell them that you love them and that you love spending all this time with them. The quarter deck is brought to you by Miguel Science Photography. From the beginning of your family to the first birthday and beyond. Whether it's a retirement or a Marine Corps ball, Miguel Science Photography is there to make memories that will last a lifetime. Miguel Science Photography is a certified veteran-owned business. Contact them at miguelsciencephotography.com. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. Now that the 1st Marine Division was in Kuwait and they had already had the meetings with Major Hassan and were able to identify the situations and what the actions might be from the Iraqi forces. Once the division gets ready to go across the border from Kuwait and into Iraq, now the division has started to think regarding force protection and the atmosphere that they were having. But not only just once they got into Iraq, but they had to take into consideration the force protection that they needed to have in place while they were there in Kuwait doesn't matter that they were there and the Kuwaitis were our allies. Things can happen no matter where you are, even here in the United States. There's times when you have to raise the force protection level, especially in military bases or high-priority areas, like in Washington, D.C., the White House, the Pentagon, those areas. It was the same when the 1st Marine Division was there in Kuwait. So they had to take that into consideration. So let's find out a little bit more. Let's find out exactly what the 1st Marine Division had in its plans in that large brain housing group that they had up in the upper chains of commands and see what their plans were for this force protection plan. Even in the friendly country of Kuwait, the Marines maintained a very strong force protection posture. The division's Marines were tough and always ready to kill. If terrorist elements were to infiltrate into Kuwait and attack the division prior to crossing the line of departure, they would have to get past a series of alert marines, sentries, and guardian angels with weapons ready. Now, guardian angels, what that is, is individuals that are basically in all four corners posted, keeping an eye on the area. So for those of you that really don't understand or don't know what that means, let's look back if most of you guys have seen all the movies where special forces or anything like that, or hey, even on Call of Duty for all my video game freaks out there. When you have the people in the guard towers, that's basically a guardian angel. They have them posted there to keep an eye around the area. And they're walking around or they can be basically posted in the four corners or in the perimeter of the area where the division was. And they had the weapons ready. Now, even though when we were in Kuwait and all that stuff, we had our weapons with us every single day. We had ammo with us and our weapons were always with us ready to go. Say basically all we had to do 
was charge the weapon back because we already had the magazine loaded, but we just did not have a round in the chamber. So that is basically what guardian angels means. The vast majority of Kuwaitis were supportive of the U.S. presence in their country and understood the mission and reasons for it. The entire Middle East region, however, retained political, religious, and anti-Western discontent for a vocal and violent few, largely focused on the Israel-Palestine issue. U.S. forces in the region were naturally high-profile targets for these groups, and the division continued to present a hard target for terrorists. There were a number of incidents that influenced the division's careful approach to force protection. Even before the arrival of the division's forest CP in Kuwait, one division Marine, Corporal Antonio J. Sled, from Battalion Landing Team 3-1, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, was killed and another wounded by a terrorist attack. This attack occurred during an 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit, or MU, training exercise on Fakala Island in Kuwait. The incident brought to light the critical importance of force protection, while deployed in theater and reminded Division Marines of the importance of having guardian angels, even while operating in the Allied country. Although difficult to see at the time of his death, Corporal Sled's sacrifice would have a significant impact on setting the conditions for keeping his fellow Marines alive during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Another contemporary incident in theater involves soldiers from the 101st Airborne Division arriving in Kandahar, Afghanistan, on strategic lift aircraft. Because the soldiers were not permitted to carry ammunition on the military aircraft, they were left defenseless when they came under fire upon arrival. The division raised these concerns to higher headquarters and insisted that Marines deployed into the Elevated Forces Protection Risk Area must be equipped to defend themselves. With the CFLCC's assistance, travel regulations were modified to allow the Marines of the division to travel with their TO weapons and self-protection ammunition included on civilian contracted carriers. Now, this was very, very important. I mentioned to everybody earlier how when we flew on those civilian carriers, we had everything with us to include our weapons. We had ammunition in the aircraft with us as well. And that was because of this, because of the force protection plan that the division had put into place. Incidents continued after the Marines arrived in Kuwait. Another shooting incident involving two U.S. Army soldiers and a deranged Kuwaiti policeman occurred in November, and two U.S. civilian contractors were killed near the entrance to Camp Doha in January. These incidents justified the division's alert policy to multiply vehicle convoys with armed Marines for all travel. Convoy drills, immediate action drills, and counter-ambush techniques were rehearsed by all division Marines. In addition to the number of isolated shooting incidents, there were other suspected terrorist incidents. The Iraqi Intelligence Services, or the IIS, were known to attempt operations in Kuwait. In February, it was discovered that the IIS had aggressively solicited food service workers of contact food providers as a possible way to introduce 
toxic or lethal diseases to large numbers of Marines. These incidents would give pause to advocates of cutting food service Marines, given the potential mischief to food supplies posed by contract workers with close access. Bomb threats were routine, and all vehicles entering Camp Commando and the TAA were carefully searched. So as we can see, the division actually covered the majority of its tracks when it dealt with any type of force protection or anything that ensured that the Marines of the division were going to be safe when they were there, even in Kuwait. Now I can tell you guys, when we arrived there in Kuwait and the 11th Marines finally made their home, Camp Matilda, guardian angels were everywhere. Even in our area where we slept, in our tent little city, our circus tents as we called them, we had Marines that patrolled our area around our area where, the, where our battery or even our battalion was located at. We made sure that we had those guardian angels and we had individuals that were roaming around with their ammo and all that stuff just to ensure because you never know. You never know who might have made their way in and it maybe is trying to attempt to do anything to harm the Marines that are there. Suicide bombers. Those were the main threats that we had because there were so many people that were actually embedded in Kuwait that came from other countries that were paid to go in there and cause bodily harm to Marines and American service members that were getting ready to head into Iraq in Kuwait. But by having this force protection plan in place, this kind of helped to disrupt those actions and ensure that they realized that the 1st Marine Division was always paying attention. We had an eye on what was going on. We were there to help and assist the people of Iraq. However, those people also understood that we were there to help and to assist. But mess with us, and you will honestly see the kind of enemy that we can be moving forward. Hero, Hero highlight. highlight. Colonel Justice Marion Chambers, who received the Medal of Honor for actions during the Iwo Jima campaign, was born 2 February of 1908 in Huntington, West Virginia. He went to high school there and completed three years at Marshall College in Huntington. He attended George Washington University for two years and National University, both in Washington, D.C., where he obtained his law degree. Following the completion of two years enlistment in the Naval Reserve in 1930, he joined the Marine Corps Reserve as a private. He was commissioned in 1932 and continued his studies towards promotion. He was a major, attending summer camp when Washington's 5th Battalion was called up in 1940. He was well known for the enthusiasm and energy in which he trained his men. Lieutenant Colonel Chambers received the Silver Star Medal for evacuating the wounded and directing the night defense of a battalion aid station on Tulagi, where he himself was a patient already seriously wounded. He commanded the 3rd Battalion 25th Marines in Roy Namar campaign. On Saipan, he suffered a blast concussion, but returned to lead his command there and on Tinan. He had trained his command so thoroughly 
and his leadership was so conspicuous that he was awarded the Legion of Merit with a combat V. Lieutenant Colonel Chambers commanded the 3rd Battalion, 25th Marines in the Iwo Jima landing on 19 February of 1945. His sector was beneath high ground from which heavy enemy fire wrecked the whole landing beach. Capture of the high ground, the Medal of Honor recommendation stated, was essential to the success of D-Day operations. It is an established fact that had it not been done, it would have constituted a most serious threat to the subsequent operations of the 5th Amphibious Corps. The 3rd Battalion lost more than half its officers and nearly one half its enlisted strength on D-Day. But by fearless disregard for his own life and leading his depleted battalion by example rather than command, Lieutenant Colonel Chambers won the key heights and anchored the right flank of the Marines' position. On the fourth day, directing the Marines' first rocket barrage and exposed the enemy's main line of resistance. Lieutenant Colonel Chambers fell under enemy machine gun fire. His wounds were so serious that he was medically retired and because he had been specially commended for performance of duty in combat, he was promoted to Colonel. Presentation of the Medal of Honor was made at the White House by President Harry S. Truman on 1 November of 1950. Colonel Chambers had been recommended for the award on 7 April 1945, following his evacuation seriously wounded from Iwo Jima. He had initially received the Navy Cross for his actions, but upon re-examination of the original recommendation with additional evidence, his award was upgraded to the Medal of Honor a few years later. Colonel Chambers retired from the United States Marine Corps Reserve on 1 January of 1946. After his retirement, he served as a staff advisor for the Senate Armed Service Committee. He passed away on 29 July of 1982 and was buried in Arlington National Cemetery, Arlington, Virginia. In addition to the Medal of Honor, Silver Star Medal and Legion of Merit with a Combat V, Colonel Chambers decoration and medals include the Purple Heart Medal with two gold stars, Presidential Unit Citation with three bronze stars, Organized Marine Corps Reserve Medal with two stars, American Defense Service Medal, American Campaign Medal, Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with one silver star, denoting five campaigns, and the World War II Victory Medal. The Quarterdeck. This week on The Quarterdeck, we talked so much about force protection and how important it is and that was what the 1st Marine Division was focusing on in the chapter that we read today. Now, one thing that we got to consider and we got to remember is how important that is. And for all my listeners that were in the military or are still on active duty, that's like second nature to you. But for those individuals that have never served in the military, that's something that maybe you're not quite used to seeing or understanding what it deals with. But a lot of people aren't really used to seeing people armed with weapons standing guard outside of a gate in, on a military base. Some people are. That's normal. Sometimes when you go to other countries, for example, every time that I go to Mexico, you see the Mexican army standing there on the border once you cross across into actual Mexico. 
they're there armed with weapons and stuff, standing there, standing guard with their border patrol agents or CBP, whatever you want to call them on that side. They're there as well. And for a lot of people, that's not normal. And that is what the division was doing. They were ensuring that the Marines that were there on the ground, even though they were just in Kuwait, they want to make sure that they were safe. So that's what it meant to do with this, with the actual, you know, the protection that they wanted to put into place. Next week, we're going to look at the logistical planning and rehearsal that they were going to conduct to ensure that the division was prepared once they crossed the border into Iraq. And there was not going to be any time loss or anything dealing with any kind of supplies, ammo, water, food, those things that the Marines on the ground that were moving forward towards Baghdad were not going to be short of that once that time came. In our hero highlights this week, we looked at the citation of a Colonel Justice Marion Chambers, United States Marine Corps, and what he did during his battles during World War II on Iwo Jima that allowed him to be able to actually be able to receive that Medal of Honor. Next week, we're going to look at Sergeant Daryl Samuel Cole, United States Marine Corps, and look at his citation and see what he did with this Marine, this young Marine that was born on 20 July of 1920. So come back next week so you can actually hear his story, his citation of what he did during World War II. For me here on the Quarter Deck, I hope that everybody has had a great start to the new year and look forward to seeing wonderful things for the rest of the years. So until next time, we'll see you next week. This is the Gunny sounding Liberty, Liberty. Call. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies foreign and domestic.